0: Side possibly. Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. Clark got it! Dwight
1: Clark! Joe Montana rolls right. When he throws a pass to only one person the whole stadium could catch the fingertips of Dwight Clark. Some players coming out of the right corner of my eye, and he's. <clears throat> That's it. To catch,
0: put another log on the fire. Nobody here is getting tired. This
1: is The Fire Pit, hosted by Matt Janella.
2: Where some might say Walter Yost is the Michael Jordan of sports photography. It's actually more accurate to say Michael Jordan is the Walter Yost of basketball. Yost has been taking pictures professionally for 59 years. He has shot every Super Bowl. He has over 300 covers of Sports Illustrated, which includes action, portrait, and swimsuit. His versatility, personality, and talent, along with the trust and respect of his subjects, plus his passion for sports and his craft, have earned him a spot in the International Hall of Fame of Photography. I've done several stories on Yost through the years. I was lucky enough to edit some of his images. I carried cameras for him at a Super Bowl. I've played golf with him at his two home courses, Montauk Downs on Long Island and Crendon Park on Key Biscayne. His swing, like his iconic career, is one long exposure. Today, he tells the story of chasing Tiger to recreate Peskin, almost botching a portrait session with Jack and Arnie, arguably the most famous image in NFL history. And he shares several stories about his special relationship with MJ. To offer some perspective and insight into the photographer and the man, we've called upon Neil Leifer, Yose's counterpart at Sports Illustrated, going back to when they were teenagers. Where Leifer has Ali over Liston, Yos has Dwight Clark over Everson Walls.
0: Walter and I were fanatical about covering every big event we could cover. And each one of us, like I say, wanted, you wanted to get the cover of the magazine, which essentially was the gold medal. Uh, you wanted to get the opening spread in the magazine, which was always a big picture. And unlike, I think, most of the other guys, Walter and I wanted to get both every time.
2: The other voice you'll hear throughout is Christian Yos, the oldest of Eva and Walter's two sons. Christian is a photographer, a photo editor, and is currently the executive producer of video at Discovery Golf
3: you know, they always talk about this yos luck. And I, I've never said that it's luck. I mean, this is a guy that has grown up obsessed with sports. You know, he, he was a great athlete in his own right. Um, and it's just fascinated with the game and the movement and knowing where to be and what the plays that are gonna happen come from, like this life of just living sports. Um, and I've always attested his luck to just knowledge, you know, like that's it. I mean, has there been some luck involved? Probably. But you know, knowing where to be on a field and knowing which way a ball is, you know, a throw is going to go, is, is comes from a, a life of just obsessed with sports. Born in
2: 1943, Walter Yost Jr. grew up in East Orange, New Jersey, the son of a decorated jazz musician and the grandson of, nimble fingers, a ragtime piano player, and as Walter puts it, the pride of Brooklyn.
1: I'd see my father on Sunday. And as a musician, a lot of musicians like photography. And that was his hobby throughout his life. And he got me interested. And we went to a New York Giants football game in 1959. He bought season tickets. And he bought a 300 millimeter F4 Takumar lens and an Asahi Pentax camera on the Upper West Side, where all the camera stores were back in the 50s. And he used to go in there. I'd go in with him and, you know, talk cameras, but I didn't know. So a six-game season at home, you know, 12-game regular season. So at game four, I finally got the nerve to take this camera. You know, fans were hitting their heads, banging into it. And I said, I didn't want any part of this. I don't like confrontation like that. And I shot, you know, 10 pictures or something. We went back east orange where my home was processed that roll of film and held it up to the light. As my former managing editor, Terry McDonald said, my future was unlocked.
2: While in high school, and if he wasn't playing stickball or football in the streets, Yost attended the Germain School of Photography in New York.
1: And then I graduated from East Orange High School and late June, and on July 6th, I got called for my first assignment and was paid $100 I mean, that's a lot of money. And then when I I go to football games, okay, we want you to go to the Giant game on the sidelines. I go, really? And then I get back to my friends, oh, they're paying you to go on the sidelines and take pictures? You're like a thief. I mean, who wouldn't want to do this? I mean, we're all children at that point.
2: Just a kid in a man's world, Young Yost called Sports Illustrated and convinced George Bloodgood, the magazine's deputy picture editor at the time, to review his portfolio. Bloodgood agreed to provide Young Yost with film and processing for select assignments.
1: He sent me to Buffalo, uh, like 1962, so this is, 61 is when I started. It was the first plane I ever took. I remember getting air sick on the plane, I was a nervous wreck. And I went to Buffalo and shot Boston versus Buffalo, the American football league. And there was a a running back on Buffalo. His name was Elbert Golden Wheels Dubinian. And he ran a kickoff back 105 yards. And I got the whole sequence. And apparently, during the meeting with the manager, Andre Laguerre, he said, who took these pictures? he says, oh, that's my guy, Walter Rios. And then I was in the lineup. You never know. Golden Wheels do and did it for me.
2: Yost would ride the heels of Golden Wheels to the arm of Johnny U.
1: I I got my first pass to go to Baltimore in 1962. San Francisco and Baltimore game at Memorial Stadium. I guess I'm 18. With a minute left in the game, United throws his pass to Jimmy Orr and he makes this bobbling catch with his pinky down. In one frame with 180, I back up and shoot it, and on the train, like. And everyone's on me. Do you get that picture, kid? I said, I don't think so. You know, oh how can you miss it? Like, uh oh. you get home and you develop it, and it's as sharp as any picture I've ever taken. And that was my first action shot
2: back in the 60s there was no such thing as autofocus neil lifer remembers the or image
0: and walter did this beautiful picture just as the ball is going in his hands i know how hard that is to do if you did that once or twice a season that was you had a pretty good season It, it was easier to get a running back going through the line or getting the quarterback getting sacked but to get a receiver running at you or away from you or whichever and get the ball Just Walter did that all the time proper focus
2: is only one of the key ingredients to a memorable image
0: a picture is
1: sort of simple to me a good background good light and then make something good happen in front of it because if your background stinks you've got a bad picture I mean you've edited my picture I'm possessed with backgrounds. To me, it starts with, where am I shooting this person? I can make the light happen. But it has to start with that. And you think of like great photographers use up every millimeter of the frame perfectly. And the greatest is Jim Knockaway. He never crops a picture. Every speck in that picture is there for a reason. And that's what a great picture gives you. As the golf
2: photo editor at Sports Illustrated, I would try to hire Yost to shoot the majors. He had no interest. He had hoofed it around enough courses covering legends like Palmer, Nicholas, Player, and Watson. But then along came a kid named Woods.
1: The first time I photographed Tiger was 2000. I wanted to recreate the famous Ben Hogan one iron shot that High Peskin took. So I went out with a speed graphic camera, a four-by-five camera, with my assistant, Tom, and the chum bucket where he take peel off the Polaroids. Well, the problem with that camera is you have to get close because it's, it's sort of a wide-angle normal lens.
2: You never met Tiger? You didn't introduce yourself? You didn't try to tell him what you were trying to do? You didn't, he didn't know who you were? No,
1: he didn't want to talk to me. I can be aggressive this way. And you know, golfers, hate photographers getting too close to him. And there's one spot they really detest behind him. So I'm, I'm, I'm around him, I don't know what hole we're at, maybe six, eight. he's already, I can see him getting itchy. I said to my assistant, Tom, let's get out of here. Let's go, let's go over on the fairway, put on your sunglasses. So as we're standing there, and I I, I must've been 10, 15 feet behind him. And I could Steve, Steve Williams, and they're talking like, oh shit. Steve saunters over and he goes, excuse me, Mike, have you ever covered a golf tournament before? I said, oh, yes, sir. And so I continued my relentless pursuit of Tiger with wide-angle lenses. I was in his nostrils. I've been thrown out so many golf tournaments. That's what I told my sister, I said, you know what, Tom? We get this shot and we get thrown out, who gives a crap? Throw me out, I'd be happy. Two months later, Sports Illustrated assigns me to do a cover of Tiger at Islesworth, the one in the uh, Adirondack chair. So we go to Lake Windermere and put him in the Adirondack chair. And now I'm being introduced to Tiger. And yeah, I mean, oh, great admirer of him, obviously. And I said, Tiger, I'm Walter Yost. I said, you know, I covered you at La Costa. I don't know if you noticed me. He says, every hole. Bingo. But we kept, became friends after that. Photographed him for Nike. I photographed him for Golf Digest in December. And, uh, you know, we go back 20 years, and it's, a, it's, a, it's really a nice relationship.
2: Walter always seems to get what he's looking for, creates the image he envisions, which isn't to say there have been some hiccups. Christian Yos explains.
3: He shows up a day late to shoot a, a portrait of Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. And I was there and he didn't show. And I was like, oh my God, you know, what am I gonna do? You know, it's freaking Jack and Arnie and you know, there's agents involved. And I'm in Montauk and Christian calls me
1: says, where are you? I said, I'm in Montauk. He says, "The shoots today. I said, what? So I flee out of there, I drive down Philly, and I'm like a day late. So I get to the press tent, and I see Jack. I find Jack, and I, Will you do it today? Okay, after lunch, no problem. Arnie had just left. It was raining that day. He had left the putting green, and I said, "Whoever's running the press desk," I said, "You have to get me in touch with Arnold." So I can't, I can't give you out any numbers. I said, "Please." He says, I'll dial his home number for you. Rings and rings and rings and rings. And he's just let to hang up and goes, hello? I said, Arnold, hey, it's Walter Yost. I said, I'm sorry about being a day late. I said, could you possibly do it today? He said, yeah, sure, I'll come over. And I brought the two of them into this hotel room, posed them together. This was special, but with the end of the day, I walk out of there, you know, it was at a golf course and the two most famous golfers of all time being together. And this woman goes up to her husband, she goes, you're not gonna believe who I just saw. I just saw Arnie and Jack. He said, oh, stop it. And he walked out.
2: Did you ever have the sense that between Jack and Arnie, they they knew what they were doing. They knew they needed each other.
1: That's what makes sports great. You know, you need somebody out there. If Jack were all alone out there, I'm sorry, Jack was Jack. And then Arnie, the most personable, charming, charismatic, one of them, right up there with Ali, of all time. Running around, hatless, the cigarette, the swagger, Arnie's Armies, all the women, the men, everyone wanted to be with Arnie. I mean, he's one of the great people I've ever met. And you know the picture of them at the table I took in '65, Arnie and Jack. There's three signed images by both of them and myself. I gave one to Jack, gave one to Arnie, and I have one. And the last time I went to Latrobe and went down the staircase downstairs, that picture was on the wall. It's like uh, that meant a lot. Arnie, Jack,
2: and Tiger. That was obviously Yose's big three in golf. But I asked him for his three most memorable images.
1: Slam Dunk 88 in Chicago. The Blue Dunk in 87 in Lyle, Illinois. And January 10, 1982, Dwight Clark's Catch. The story with the catch is, in July of 1981, I was sent by Sports Illustrated to spend the season with the Cowboys. So I started in Thousand Oaks, California. Every game I'm with, I'm in with the team. It's like family now. I've seen all kinds of things you wouldn't even imagine I'm not even going to talk about in the locker room.
2: Give us, give us something. Give us something you saw, because you're embedded with, this is Tom Landry.
1: I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to tell you one thing. This is Tom Landry. Yeah. Tom Landry, basically, he said hello to me once, and we never... Said another word for the entire season. He couldn't have cared less if I was in there, but I was in, and that was it. I, I you know what? I'm not going to talk to him. I posed him once on the field with the Gilbrant and uh, the other owners. That was it. I stayed away from him. You stayed away from people like Landry or Lombardi. Stay away. So there was a player on the team and this was like week two and you know you start with a team you stay back you don't start putting your camera in people's faces and this guy comes up and he says i want to take a picture of you. i want you to take a picture of me being shot up you know i look around okay they're they're testing me i said why would you want me to do that he says so i can give it to my son so he never plays pro football i said i'll do it on one condition I'll give you the roll of film. So I went to the trainer's room. He got shot up. I shot it. and I gave him a roll of film. And he became my best friend on the team. I'm not mentioning any names. So we go to San Francisco. And, you know, teams wired up. They're passing out these things. Energy build, breaks down lactate acid. I mean, everyone's taking PR guys. Give me six of those things. I almost took the field. I was so wired up. So the game's going pretty well. You know, next game's the Super Bowl. And then, with what, 56, 58 seconds left in the game, Joe Montana rolls right. Montana, looking, looking,
2: throwing in the end zone. it! Dwight Clark!
1: He throws a pass to only one person the whole stand could catch. The fingertips of Dwight Clark.
2: A moment that reversed the course for not only Dwight Clark, but for the 49ers franchise and for a season long project on the Cowboys. So I pressed Yost for more details as to why he was ready with the short lines.
1: Sports Illustrated, ran a cover of either the year before of uh, Dave Logan in Cleveland, making a one handed catch on the sidelines, 50 millimeter. Maybe it was in 1980. When Montana Roll Right, I was with a a zoom, like an 80 to 200 zoom. I have that picture, big lenses down. And I got the 50 ready. And I shoot the sequence of the pass. I drop it and I'm pre-focused like at 12 feet. So I just pick up the camera and I see some players coming out of the right corner of my eye. And you just that's it, it's the catch. (laughs) It's like, that's an old saying chance favors the prepared man so you know i was thinking ahead you just never expected a play of that significance to happen but that's why i gotta be ready and the season's over and it's like i mean catch didn't exist at that point this was just a touchdown and i went into the locker room the single saddest place i've ever been outside you know funeral of personal friends the silence was deafening as they say and that was it for the season and the magazine ran all of john underwood's text and almost none of my pictures which really pissed me off but that cover came out next week which i didn't even know i was on the road again called the catch so suddenly over you know 40 years this has become arguably the most famous picture in pro football history. And oddly enough, I never met Dwight Clark, but we were always connected by a 500th of a second. And you know, obviously I'm happy I took that picture now, but not in 1982.
2: <laughs> For more on this memorable moment, once again, we hear from Lifer and Christian Yos.
0: The catch I like to say what separates the average sports photographer from the truly great ones is there's so much luck involved in sports. You've got to be in the right position. The catch happened right in front of Walter. It could have happened at the other corner of the end zone and you're not in the position. What separates the really great ones from the ordinary photographers is when you're in the right position, you don't miss. And Walter was clearly in the lucky seat. And he didn't miss.
3: My favorite part and my favorite antidote about the catch is not so much like what went into it and what happened. My favorite part of this, at some point, like when you watch the footage, the camera, you know, pans and follows Dwight Clark and it goes up. And when you look in the background at all the photographers and media, they're all like looking in, in amazement about what's happening. And there's one guy with a camera up to his face, and it's my dad.
2: Yoss's greatness is not just capturing an image. It's also conceptualizing.
3: Uh,
1: Walter, I'd like to go to Chicago and shoot uh, Michael Jordan. Oh, okay. So he sent me to Lyle, Illinois, at a kid's camp. His brother was there. I did some portraits of him. And I had the idea for the, the shadow, the dunk.
2: Did you know him at that time?
1: No, i never met Michael but he was so charming, as you can see from TV. I mean, <laughs> there is no doubt, no doubt, who the greatest, coolest, most dominating, meanest basketball player was of all time. No one more beautiful than Michael. I am mean, Jesus. So there was this huge parking lot at this school, a college or something. So I painted one section red, not me, I had someone do it, and another section blue Because I wasn't sure which uniform he was going to show up in. You know, if he showed up in the white uniform, we would have gone with the red. Then I brought since you can't have a stationary basket to create the proper shadow line and angle, I brought in a basket. I called the NBA. I called someone in Chicago. The only place I could get an NBA basket was trucked in from St. Louis. Back in those days. Who cared about money? So a guy trucked in an NBA basket, which you could lower, and then set it at any angle so you get the shadow in the right spot. Then you have to do it at a specific time of the day. You know, it can't be too early or too late. If they are clouds, you've got a problem. So Michael comes out in his red. We go blue. I go up in the cherry picker. Maybe he does 10 dunks. And the blue dunk came to be.
2: You painted the asphalt in the parking lot. Did you have to repaint it afterwards or just?
1: Hell no, I left town. (laughs) 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 I got out of there as fast as I could.
2: Again, as Christian Yost explains, as it relates to MJ and other megastars, timing is always a factor.
3: Think about, like, my dad's career and... it you know like there's this roller coaster peak and think about the athletes that he had access to you know michael tiger montana ripken kobe slater i mean here's a guy who's really good at what he does and has access to incredible athletes pre internet age right so they need the media you know like magazines and newspapers and tv are important and you know like here's a guy here's a photographer who who they can request i mean cheater you name it i mean They wanted to work with him because they trusted him and they know that they needed their name, the pictures uh, and these media outlets and um, kind of fortuitous timing on some of it.
2: The slam dunk contest in the late 80s mattered, thanks in large part to little guys like Spud Webb. Then there's Clyde the Glide Drexler, the human highlight film, Dominique Wilkins. And in 1988 in Chicago, Michael Air Jordan was the defending champion. Yet again, Yost had a plan.
1: I'd gone to this flam dunk contest in 87 in Seattle and lit it theatrical. Some nice pictures. But I understood if you can't see the player's face, the dunk doesn't matter. And guys come in backwards and dunk. So I either asked Michael the dumbest or smartest question. As I said, you can always get no. He's sitting there before the game. I'm there like four hours before because I've strokes. So to like the arena. I say, hey, Mike, it's Walter Yells. Hey, oh yeah, hey, doing you? Oh you yeah. say, I have a little cold. I said, Michael, and I explained the situation about Seattle. And I said, well, is there any way you could tell me which way you're going to take off from? <laughs> he looks up at me and goes, sure. I said, well, how are you going to do that? He says, I'll put my finger down on my knee and I'll point. I said, you're gonna remember this? He says, watch me, because everything's a game.
2: Here's the story. Wilkins finishes with 145. Michael Jordan needs
0: a 48 to tie, a 49 to win. Creativity and imagination is the key. Plus he's gotta make the dunk.
1: So I look over the bench, finger, okay, I move to the right side. So it comes down to the last two dunks. One that preceded my, which looked like a slam dunk. So at the next to last dunk, I'm right at the stanchion. I'm like closed up like that at the blot of the super wide. He dunks and he lands in my lap. The last dunk, he goes to the same spot, and I'm in the same spot again, like no, fuck, I'm in my position. And he looks down at me, he goes like this. And I move over three feet, one frame, and that's the slam dunk. They gave Jordan a 50. He defends his championship. In
2: 1991, the Chicago Bulls won their first of six NBA titles. Jordan had averaged over 30 points per game, six rebounds, five and a half assists, and had been awarded his second of four NBA MVPs. Again, Yost was conceptualizing.
1: It was a bad year in 92. I was having a really bad year. There were no jobs. And I was like, I've got to get some work, man. And there was a book of Elvis Presley shot in 56, behind the scenes by Albert Wertheimer. You know, one of the great photo diaries of all time. So I, I flew to Chicago. I had a job in Hawaii, actually. And on the way in, I stopped in Chicago. I just waited for the locker room to clear out. He walked out, he said, hey Walter, what are you doing here? I said, I've got an idea. He said, your ideas usually mean work. And so we walked out to the edge of the stadium. We're still indoors. And his guy's were there, Gus And I pitched him on this idea that this would be your photo album for the rest of the life. Look, you already got the NBA ring. You're all MVP. You got your children. You got your family. Pretty much done it already. Why don't we document one year? I like this idea. Give me a week. And I flew back. And I said, what do you think? He said, let's do it. We just shook hands. We had no publisher, no title. And I I think I was like 30,000 into it. Yeah, I spent a lot of time at the Ritz-Carlton in Chicago in the winter. Flying all over the country, no one was paying anything. And then Mark Vansell, the writer, came up into the picture. Michael introduced us. One day said, Walter, I'm going to introduce you to someone. And we went into the Blackhawks locker room. This is Mark Fansell. He's on the book. All right. So Mark became the writer and came up with the fantastic title, Rare Air. And we couldn't sell the book. We flew to San Francisco, to the commons. And the people we met with were the last people on earth who would ever buy a book on an athlete. I remember we left there, like, oh my gosh. It's a long trip for nothing. They bought the book, so the book is published. No one cares about it, and then Michael's father is murdered. Michael retires. And I'll never forget as long as I live. Barnes and Noble on Columbus Avenue. The book went from the basement to the front of the window, and number one on the New York Times bestseller list. That sold better than any other prints, <laughs> That book, eight hundred thousand books. So that was, that's to me, like, you know how much music means to me. That's like having one record that everyone knows. I always compare it to I I Left My Heart in San Francisco. You know, everyone knows that song. So you can think of Tony and one song and he's got it. How many people have one? One thing that goes to number one like that. So that's very special to me.
2: Michael Jordan once said about Walter, he's fast and he's good. Lifer and Christian Yos reflect on Rare Air.
0: Walter's genius as a photographer was going to produce brilliant pictures if you have access and the ability to have the time to do it right. And obviously Michael gave Walter the time. I mean, there are pictures in Rare Air. It's a picture in the bathtub, I think, with him and his, and his little kids, as I remember, and I haven't looked at Rare Air for a while. I mean, how can you miss? It's
3: incredible to think about the access that he had during that run. I mean, here is the the greatest team in sports, the biggest athlete on the face of the planet. And he's got the unlimited access. He's on the team buses. He's in hes in Michael's hotel room. He's in the trainer's room, which, I, you know, as we've learned, was like the inner sanctum. I mean, nobody was allowed in there.
2: You gonna keep doing it until you die?
3: I hope so. <laughs> I, 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 don't,
1: I never want to retire. I love taking pictures, that's what I do best. I still think I can take them. It's not a lot of jobs out there right now, but I'm
0: not done yet.
2: What's one picture that Walter shot that you wish you would have shot?
0: I would love to have gotten the first Super Bowl cover. And uh, you know, because it was the first, and, and and I'm saying that now in 2020, I don't think I felt that strongly about it that year and, and of the two I got the second Super Bowl cover of Lombardi being carried off the field but Walter got the first one and he got the third one that Joe Namath I would have liked to have had all three <laughs>
2: what are you most proud of of your
3: dad the The thing I'm most proud of my father is the way that he's carried himself you know he's always treated you know his his big thing is the golden rule and you know he's always wanted his reputation to precede him, and I think it has. And, you know, he treats people well. He cares about people. He's a family guy. I mean, he loves his grandkids. I mean, he's he's just, I think, gone about his career and his personal life in the right way. Um, And for me, that's something I really look up to.
2: It's a tradition on the fire pit. We ask our guests, do you have a favorite fire pit that's a happy place for you?
1: Yeah. Our pool in the summer in Montauk. That's the pit.
2: That's where the good stuff goes down.
1: Well, that's where the kids are, you know, it's all you know, the grandkids, all family there. The pool will be open in July.
2: Hi, I'm Matt Ginella, your host of The Fire Pit. As a listener to this podcast, my friends John Ashworth and Jeff Cunningham at LinkSoul in Oceanside, California, are offering you a 25% discount on all future orders of what I consider the best golf and lifestyle apparel. Whenever you go to LinkSoul.com, use promo code MATTYG25. In the meantime, make par, not war, and stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to The Fire Pit. This podcast is produced by Alex Upegi, edited by Rex Lint, theme song and music by Joe Horowitz. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review featured in a future episode. Got a question, comment, or a story for us to track down? You can find me on Twitter at Matt Genoa or on Instagram at Matt underscore Janela. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Fire Pit on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher.